into a bunker for 31 days in October and forced themselves to watch 31 movies, read three books, and watch the entire first season of The Twilight Zone. I believe that's something like 36 episodes, by the way. I uh, maybe didn't literally lock myself in a bunker. I was in a symbolic bunker uh, where I watched a movie every day and I made notes and I got real ambitious and tried to compile as much stuff to put into these episodes as possible. So you might get some appearances here and there from Rank and Review guests or some clips and some fun audio, but the reason I'm doing this was A, to challenge myself, and B, because in the age of COVID, it's been harder to get guests to the show. So this series of episodes of Rank and Review is going to have a lot to do with just your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, slowly going crazy as he overindulges in genre pictures. So yes, this was all uh, made in October of 2020, but the episodes are being put together and they'll be coming out. There should be five of them, if I, unless I get really a negative feedback. Uh, they'll be spread out over the next several months. This first episode is called Cheap Thrills. And uh, the theme going into Cheap Thrills was movies that were made very inexpensively, but also on some level feel cheap. From the 1st of October, subspecies. October 8th, two-headed shark attack. October 13th, between two worlds. October 18th, seven below. October 25th, the plague. October 29th, dark wolf. And I'll be doing a bonus review from October 11th of a new, not cheap movie called You Should, Should Have Left. You Should Have Left. I hope you bear with me for this very experimental episode of Ranking Review. Chaos is only a few moments away. We're all just barely clinging to sanity. And these episodes are evidence to these facts. Good luck. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening to Ranking Review. Send your feedback to rankingreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca, and there's plenty of other great podcasts for you to fill your ears with. Um, 
let's see, there's the Terror Table podcast, there's the Shelf Shedding Movie podcast, there's Cobwebs, the Gothic Cinema podcast, A Lifetime of Hallmark is another good one to listen to, and of course, Welcome to Riverdale. Please consider supporting me. Species is the first in a series of low-budget vampire films from the Charles Band Empire, and uh, this is handmade by the man himself. And uh, it's one of these low-budget movies that's going to do the best it has with what it's got to offer. And what it's got to offer is some really cool, you know, locations. The the movie's set in Transylvania, and and you believe it. I'm I'm not sure of the exact location of where it was shot, but they have locations that would be very easy to sell. That you know ancient vampires would like to hang out there. Um, They have a young, pretty, capable cast. I mean, they're doing the job well enough for the low-budget sort of level that we're dealing with. And it follows the rules of what you want, I guess, out of a vampire movie within the standards of a direct-to-video market of the very early 1990s. Yes, I'm talking about sex and violence. There's violence and there's sex. I mean, there's nudity. And um, it it sort of fit the bill. It was what you wanted, you know, at that place and time. The weird thing is when you come to be looking at it, you know, now. It's, It's uncomfortable to talk about, but one of the big assets of the movie is the nudity. At the time, in the early 90s, you know, the internet wasn't a ubiquitous thing. Say, let's say, for instance, you're a kid of 13 or 14 years old and, uh, you know, (laughs) you're very fascinated by the female form. Horror movies that have that on offer had that as a, a real appeal for. It was not something you had access to very easily in, you know, for, for, for adolescents of that age. So I think a large part of the demographic of this is like, you know, Adolescence first horror movies, sort of kinky things that maybe they shouldn't be seeing, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. And as that kind of experience, I guess it's harmless and fine enough. But I, I can't get super excited about about subspecies. And 
I can get a little bit giggly and condescending at times. It has Angus Scrim for a very, very short time at the beginning of the movie to set up our story as he, he was the patriarch of this clan of vampires. And he wants to hand down his bloodstone relic to not his firstborn, but his secondborn son, who's a good vampire. Because his firstborn son, he's a bad vampire. And he talks like this all the time, which I guess is expected which, you, you know, that's that's what an evil vampire is supposed to sound like. But, I mean, as much as people, you know, have, there's a cult thing around this character, uh, I, I think he's maybe, maybe pulling it, pouring it on a little bit, a little bit, a little bit hard. And if it's a vampire movie, what do they mean by subspecies? Well, Evil Radu's, one of his tricks is he can break off the end of his extremely long, crazy vampire fingers and these weird demon-looking gremlin creatures manifest and, you know, get him out of binds and unlock traps in the wall and just do his bidding. And it's weird. The special effects haven't aged particularly well, but I guess they would be quote-unquote impressive considering the budget of the time, maybe? But their presence in the movie is so peripheral and, like, they, they stand out almost like they're an animated feature, you know? As much as they would as if Tweety Bird was landing on somebody's shoulder. They just don't quite fit in with the rest of the world that's going on. I'm not quite sure, though, why the whole whole franchise is named after them. Maybe I'll have to press forward with the franchise to find out. But in this chapter, anyway, they're an interesting and, I guess, the purely original affectation that this movie has to offer. It's another vampire movie, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. But, I mean, the the whole theme of this episode is cheap thrills. And they use what they had to help sell the product. Angus Scrim has a cult reputation from Phantasm, so maybe people will be into that. Vampires are ubiquitously popular. I've, I've talked about it all the time, and zombies might be getting there because what we once thought was a trend in zombie or a zombie craze is going on for well over a decade now, so... Maybe zombies have reached vampire status, but it seemed like most horror monster movies kind of had peaks and valleys. They came and they went. There was a phase of this, there was a phase of that. But vampires just always, there was always going to be another vampire movie coming around the corner. Um, so, uh, this movie has a legacy. I don't know that it has legs. I do think it's another one of these movies that is a victim and... Uh, Maybe, I was going to say a victim of its time, but the double-edged sword of just being so in the moment of where you where, where your movie was being made and the time it was. I mean, if, if you're nostalgic for this type of thing, I think that it, it'll have certain pleasures for those people of a certain age who saw it, you know, in that time period. But it is a movie that the farther away it gets from where it came the more foreign and, and the less, the less I guess, effective dramatically it seems to be. You know, the, the, the good vampire is so earnestly, you know, blandly good. And the bad vampire is so hilariously, evilly bad. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I got to judge these guys on a curve. And I guess what was its goals and did it accomplish its goals? It did. 
But, I mean, can I pretend that I'm super excited about subspecies? I guess I, I can't. I can't. I get it, but, I, but I'm not going to go out of the way to oversell, you know, some of the camp aspects of it. It's just... Just listening to it, some just any piece of dialogue, you kind of understand the flavor of this. And even if you find that amusing, imagine that joke going on for almost an hour and a half. I mean, even the best jokes kind of get wrung out. And and, and, and I don't know. It's it's. It, I don't like laughing at a movie really necessarily. Um, <clears throat> maybe the other big fail is that it's it's not frightening. I guess you could argue it's a little bit titillating, but it's it's not it's not frightening. It's it is what it is, you guys. It is what it is. Like take a listen. Why have you come? You were banished from this place. The night of You summoned my brother home from abroad. Did you think that I would stand by and let him assume the mantle of power? I'm your firstborn. The bloodstone is my birthright. You aren't content to live in peace, Radu. You crave evil. Bloodstone would give you too much power. This can never be. Your time is past. You have nothing more to say about it. So, I mean, I, 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 I could be wrong. <clears throat> I could be wrong. I mean, it's way too early for me to get stir-crazy in the, in the bunk. We're just getting started, but maybe I need to phone a friend. Maybe... Maybe a second opinion. This might be ill-advised, but I—I I guess it's time to see if we got if we can get Clive. Are you sure. Clive? Yeah. Clive, can you hear me? Are you there? Okay. Technology. Are you asking if I can hear you? <laughs> yeah, I—I oh. I guess I don't know. I'm—I'm I'm hoping that maybe I—I I didn't hear you. I don't know. Okay, so you liked it then? You—you you disagree? Yes. Super, super. Mm -hmm. Look, Larry. Are you okay, man? Listen, man. Listen, seriously. 2020, it's been, it's been a kick in the nuts, like. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a kick in the nuts twice, right? Maybe even four times. Wow. Wow. But, uh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that, that you care. Thank you, Clive. I'm, I'm okay. I'm holding together. It's, it's a strange time we're in, Clive. So, you know, maybe you're skewed. Maybe you're hardened, you know. I don't let this stuff get to me, man. When I see something amazing, I recognize that it's amazing, and I want everyone to know just how amazing I think the thing okay. is. I get it. Well, you know, we can people can disagree. Adults can disagree. I mean, I, I wasn't passionately against yes. it, Clive. Yes, so <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying. I think it's... it's it, Look, look, look. There's a dude with long fingers, okay? He has okay. long, creepy fingers. Yeah. And that that messes with me, man. I'm not going to lie to you. That's, that's some scary stuff. And that's just that's right away, right out the gate, dude. 
Oh, wow. Wow. What do you call, you know, bits of your fingers breaking off, falling on the floor and turning into demons? Like, what is that? Where Where is that I, coming? I, I find it relatable, quite frankly. Look, look you, we're, we're getting old, Larry, and stuff starts falling off you, you know? And this is fantasy, and in this world, that stuff, it's, it's not hurting you, it's helping you. It's, it's little red demon guys that just that do your bidding, you know? I think that's something that everybody can kind of relate to. It's a dream that, that's shared by many. <laughs> You're getting a little personal. I've... Listen, listen, we're getting way off the list. So can we talk about the breasts, the, 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 the ladies, the nakeds? The yes, the boobs. Oh my goodness, man. A vampire touches a lady's boob. He touches her boob. I oh, see, wow. I, I saw wow. Listen, wow. I, look, I didn't interrupt wow. you. Your humor just hasn't aged well. Class. There's a scene you're, where you're, there's a lady, and she is, she is, she's got a shirt on, but... It is it is in tatters, man. It is in tatters, and you can see boobs, two boobs, and nipples. Whole time while she's wearing a shirt. This movie is genius. It's a genius, and it's artistic, and I appreciated it. And it's the first and best movie I ever saw. Is what I'm trying to say to you. Well, it, you know, I would I'd love to say it was it was great to catch up with you, Clive. So, you know, subspecies. I mean, what what did you want? What did you want? What did you want when you watched this movie, man? Did you did you expect did you expect not to see vampires? Did you expect not to see little red demon folks? Did you expect not to see lady parts? Because I have to tell you, I expected to see that, and I got it, and. uh you know, it's the Halloween season, and 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 it's 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 just sex and violence, and I just think you're overthinking it. I think you're overthinking it. I think you need to chill out. I think you need to be nicer to the movie, and you need to be nicer to yourself, dude. Okay, it's been it's been a really long time since I've since we've talked, Clive. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't get you here sooner. If that's where this is coming from. Thank you. Thank you for your... I, I value your opinion. I I cherish your feedback. And uh, I got to let you go. I got to get back to the bunker. You need to be... You need, yeah. to be, you need to be good. Thank you, Clive. Thank you so much. Seriously. Look like co-ed's gone crazy. There's still college students, Laura. You can't change that. I told you this semester would offer you educational opportunities beyond your wildest expectations. First group, let's go. Spread out, but stay in this area. All right, who's getting nude first? Is this more of what you had in mind? This is exactly what I had in mind. Run! Oh, 
first of all, boys and girls, can we talk about Asylum? Asylum Productions. I believe they actually do a lot of work in Canada. I hope I'm not wrong about this, but uh, they are super, super low-budget filmmakers, and uh, they're sort of proud about it. We're going to do big-budget ideas with a tiny budget, and there's plenty of uh, film companies that will do the same thing. Charles Band Enterprises, which are responsible for subspecies, is another one of those. The Troma Enterprises is another one of those. And Asylum, like Troma, is one of those companies that I just tend to want to avoid. I am usually, I'm not even going to say usually, I am consistently disappointed by the quality and the execution of their films. And I know I'm supposed to laugh and shrug and roll my eyes and giggle because look how cheap they are, look how obvious they are, look at how kitschy they are, you know. Two-headed shark attack. What, what do you want out of this movie, Larry? Well, I'll tell you. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to be entertained. If not scared or thrilled, I wanted to laugh and guffaw. And I wanted to have characters that I liked and cheered for. And I wanted to like the movie in spite of its silliness, not hate it because of its silliness. And I haven't seen an Asylum movie that's really managed to pull it off. Like, there's been a couple of their zombie movies which I might sort of shrug off and say, I guess for its amateur execution, it has its moments. But usually, the CGI is terrible, the acting is terrible, and whatever washed-up celebrities they use to, you know, fill out the roster of, quote, stars, typically don't want to be there. They're, they're, they, you can see on their face, you know. Mariel Hemingway never imagined she was going to be in a zombie movie, and she hates it, and it's on her face. The really amazing and frustrating thing about Two-Headed Shark Attack is that it only pretends to have stars. Like, Brooke Hogan is the daughter of Hulk Hogan, and luckily she inherited none of his looks, but unluckily she has inherited all of his acting chops. She is terrible. And I hate to be this unkind, but she might be easy on the eyes, but she's just not that much of an actress, at least not in this movie. Carmen Electra, at least, never pretended to be much of an actress, but she is terrible in the movie, like brutal. There's scenes of her standing on the, on, on the deck of the ship, just holding her hair up with two hands and posing at the sunset like no human being does. She'll lay on the boat and arch her back and make sure she's looking as pretty and uncomfortable as possible. Her lines are all flat, her delivery is unconvincing. And then we have our quote star, the real draw to this movie, which would be Charlie O'Connell. And you're thinking, Charlie O'Connell, Charlie O'Connell. Oh, is that the kid from Stand By Me? The guy from Sliders and Scream 2? That guy? No, no. That would be his brother. This is Charlie O'Connell, and as far as I know, you don't know him from anything except for Two-Headed Shark Attack. He's like a somehow goofier, dumber-looking version of his brother, and I can see him trying, and maybe in another movie, in another script, maybe he can pull off a bit of acting, but these are our stars, and I really have to ask in earnest, what is the drawing power of that? Anybody who's going to watch Two-Headed Shark Attack, and I am one of those people, are being drawn to your movie because of the fucking Two-Headed Shark. 
Okay, so all of that hatred out of the way from the beginning, my little introduction to this movie. Well, what does it have going for it? It's a cheesy B cheapo movie, and it knows that it's a cheesy B cheapo movie. I'll give it some measure of points for that. A group of students who are being educated on a boat find a strange carcass floating in the water and a little uh, atoll that they need to stop at to fix their boat and just acquire some supplies. While they're there, not only do they find out this little island is sinking, but of course there's a two-headed shark that is slowly eating all of them. There seems to be a couple of dozen characters in this movie, and they're all getting eaten by the shark one at a time. Here's a good rule if you're making a no-budget monster movie, and you don't have the budget to pull off your premise. Keep the creature in the shadows as long as you possibly can. The writer and the director of this particular movie were able to keep their monster in the shadows for about the first 55 seconds of the movie. We see the shark right away, it looks terrible right away, and we're right away like, this is the movie that we're watching. And I guess on one hand I can say, well, thanks. I mean, if you know that you're hating this right now, you can just turn off the movie and not waste your life with it. But <laughs> come on, you guys. Bring the level of suspense to it. Let us anticipate this crazy two-headed shark. Let's get excited to see it. Because within the first minute, we see it, and it's terrible. I get the feeling like they had a mock-up of a close-up, like an actual made model of these two shark heads, which the actors could throw themselves at and pretend to be attacked. And the rest is the most rinky-dink, amateur-hour special effects of CGI that, that I, I can ever see. The Asylum... The thing that makes it worse than, than even trauma is that you can feel that they don't care. Trauma at least would be edgy, you know, they would take risks. They would, you know, give uh, the director carte blanche, you know, go as hard as you want, go as gross as you want, don't worry about stepping on toes or hurting feelings. Asylum's going to play it safer than that, right? I mean, you don't have to be offensive, but I mean, if you're that independent, that grungy, you got to work with things that will be assets to your movie. And I don't think that this movie, except for in a few scenes, understood what their assets were. They certainly weren't this all-star cast, and they certainly weren't the special effects. There's a scene in this movie, as inevitably there must be, where one of the students brings two attractive young women to a private little beach and they go skinny dipping, and uh, some sex happens. Not only is this little scenario just copy and pasted right out of my own personal life experience, the, the, the complete obviousness and supposedly like contractual necessity of this gratuitous nudity, the emptiness of the characters, and the appalling lack of talent in the ex execution of it, there's just... This is a sex and violence scene, and there's nothing good about it. Arguably, it's the thing that people paid their money to see in the movie, and it's one of the worst scenes in the movie. So is there anything nice I can say about Two-Headed Shark Attack? Well, here's a shocker. Yes. Here's something nice that I'm going to say about Two-Headed Shark Attack. If I'd seen it between, let's say, the age of 10 and 14, I might have had a lot of fun with it. If I'd seen this stupid cheesy B-movie before I'd seen hundreds of other stupid cheesy B-cheapo dumb movies, maybe there would be some charm to it. But 
what frustrates me is that as terrible as this movie is, as empty as this movie is, as much as anybody who worked on the movie would probably just nod their head in agreement listening to this review, there are sequels to this movie. They can make them so cheaply and put Shark on the cover of the DVD that they know they'll make money off of suckers like me. And I resent it. I resent it. It hurts my feelings. I don't like being treated that way. I say, if you want to make a micro-budget shark movie, be my guest. Just know what you're doing. Have some fun with what you're doing, and don't force-feed me garbage. Two-headed shark attack force-feeds me garbage. And here's another thing. The ocean, the sea, sharks. This is something incredibly personal to me. The reason that I've subjected myself to so many terrible shark movies is that I am fascinated and horrified by sharks. Part of it was seeing Jaws too young and the little boy getting eaten by a shark who was my age and it just being too unfathomably real to me. But part of me is just horrified by the vastness, the depth, and the mystery of the open ocean. Just being lost and adrift in the open ocean I think has got to be one of the most terrifying fates one could ever have. That's why I fear the ocean. That's why I fear sharks. That's why I'm fascinated with the subject. And that's why I think that, you know, these movies have the appeal that they do. Now here's a clip of Brooke Hogan explaining why she's scared of the ocean. Let's see if her story measures with mine. So, where are you from? Do you have a boyfriend? Not recently. Oh, the water looks so nice. Don't you just want to jump in? No. Why do you have to ask so many damn questions? Okay, look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to snap. A little freaked out by the water, that's all. How come? Well, when I was 12, it was the first summer that I was allowed to go to the beach with my friends. And all the girls were flirting with all the guys up on the beach, and I was just in the water by myself, jumping waves. You know, like the little ones come yeah. up, you, whatever. So, anyway, I jumped one, and the water cleared. The only thing I could see coming toward me was this six-foot blue shark. Circled around a few times, came about three to four feet in front of me, and then just swam away. I guess it lost interest. You're lucky. Yeah, I guess you could call it lucky, but since then I still haven't been in the water. So then, why'd you sign up for a semester at sea? I know. Could you think of a worse place for me to be? Submarine school? <laughs> Well, that's the point, though. I don't want to be worried about it anymore. I don't want to be scared, especially after, you know, it being just some fluke incident. Well, first step, I think, we explore this ghost town island, Jaws or no Jaws. You know what I really respect there? The writing and the acting and the pacing. You know, the whole package just really makes me feel good about... Uh, where cinema's at and some of the choices that I've made in my life. 
yes, I understand that B-movies are full of stock characters. There's going to be a guy who's super in love with himself and pretentious and is always saying the wrong things, and he's going to act selfishly, and he's going to get a deserved payoff, ugly death. There's going to be a lot of characters who just are there to be types, say a couple of lines so we understand kind of what what they're representing before they get eaten by the shark. And with a cast this vast, I know they don't have the time to make us care and like all of the characters. But there's a sequence towards the end of the movie where not one, but two of our main characters are about to face the ultimate fate. They know they're going to die either by drowning or by the shark. It's eminent. It's happening to them. And in that moment, Charlie O'Connell and Carmen Electrica Electrica? No, Carmen Electra. Look at each other, resigned to their face, and they embrace. And I don't believe it for one fucking second. And there's still a lot of movie left. That's not even the climactic moment of the movie. I suppose just with its ragged kind of charm that it has and the momentum that it has, like I said, if you've never seen a movie like this, you might be able to sort of chuckle at it. But I don't think you'd be laughing with it. You would have to laugh at it. Asylum, please, as a lover of horror and a lover of sharks and a lover of zombies, just stop. Stop what you're doing. You're doing it wrong. I will make excuses for shark movies. I will make excuses for terrible shark movies. This movie offends me. It hurts my feelings that this movie got made, and good movies did not. Unless you're as crazy as I am, please never subject yourself to two-headed shark. I need your help with my daughter. What are you doing Without your help, my daughter would be gone now. Try and get some rest. I brought her back. You brought someone back. I missed you. 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 When you go to the other side, are there other people there? His wife and his daughter, they died in a fire. I missed you. You. So the name of this selection is Between Worlds. The caption, Vengeance is Born in Hell. Um, I don't know if that's the right caption for this movie, but it stars Nicolas Cage, Penelope Mitchell, and Franca Potente. It's written and directed by Maria, Maria Pulera. I hope I'm saying that right, Maria. <clears throat> so a teenage girl suffers a terrible accident, and she ends up in a coma. And her mother has a special ability with which she can use to help get her back to herself. Which is, if she can have an out-of-body experience, she can communicate with her daughter and lure her back in. Nicholas Cage thinks that he's rescuing Frankie Patenta from a, someone who is assaulting her. And his act of would-be heroism sort of entangles him with this mother and daughter. 
as the daughter is recovering from the coma, she comes to believe that she is actually Nicolas Cage's dead wife. And she has a lot of interesting knowledge that she shouldn't have, and that seems to be aggravating things and adding credence to it. So there's a lot of balls in the air. There's a lot of questions. What was the accident? What were the events leading up to it? Why are her friends still interested in talking to her? Was there a crime involved? Franca Potenta has this supernatural power. What is it going to say? And will Nicolas Cage be lured by this 18-year-old girl who claims to be his lost wife, from which he wants to be redeemed? And that's the overarching theme of the movie, is redemption, I think. Uh, Making up for sins of the past, or using trauma from the past to help make your present or future better. How successful it is, is kind of the question. I mean, what is it that we look for when we're seeing a a title like this? Between Worlds, we got Nicolas Cage on the cover, a bunch of fire. So it says something demonic, something scary, and a percentage of Nicolas Cage. But which Nicolas Cage are we going to be getting on this day? Is it going to be crazy over-the-top Cage? Is it going to be whispery, barely-there Cage? Or is it going to be something in between? Well, fittingly with the title of the movie, in this case, it is something in between. But I have to say, my expectations being rather low, I find this movie, at times, intensely interesting. That's more than I expected. But I said intensely interesting. I did not say good. One of the questions that I came out asking is, is happiness achievable? It's a really dour movie. Nicolas Cage plays this really down-and-out trucker. He looks gross and slimy. He's not super appealing. If he was ever any kind of a sex symbol, he's certainly trying to do everything he can to shake this image here. He does the right thing because he happens to be in the right place at the right time. But I don't get this feeling like this guy is inherently heroic or even good. He's drunk, he's miserable, and he's hanging on to his sanity by the skin of his teeth. It's interesting because Nicolas Cage did probably the ultimate drunk movie in Leaving Las Vegas, and that within that amazing performance, he showed us every different kind of drunk person there is. Some people can be wasted out of their mind and sound pretty coherent, and once they hit this wall, they can actually turn into weirdly over-the-top cartoony drunks, and Nicolas Cage has the ability to navigate these things quite well. That said, he did it way better in Leaving Las Vegas. I do want to give points to both Frankie Patenta and Nicolas Cage for doing something that I think Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman failed miserably at. There's a scene between Frankie Patenta and Nicolas Cage where they're trying to relax, trying to blow off some steam, and they smoke marijuana together. And it's a little bit big in the writing, but the performance of it is one of the more genuine things that I've seen as far as approaching that subject. I live in Canada. Marijuana is legal here. I have done my own research, and I have been around a lot of people who are using and affected by marijuana. And very rarely does that get reflected in film. One of the few things that this movie kind of nails is that kind of culture. It's not a huge big deal, and it doesn't turn people into instant idiots. It just makes people kind of giggly and fun. Um, And the movie's honest enough to accept that. Where am I sleeping? Where, where am I? On the couch. <laughs> <laughs> On the what? On the couch. Ouch! 
That hurts. <laughs> well, I am. Um, <clears throat> my daughter is at home, and I never bring men oh. here. No, okay. I understand. She, uh, she asleep? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, she took like a Percocet or two like three hours ago. Should be uh, sleeping longer. It's probably. Uh... Start hitting the couch, then. Oh my god, what are you doing? Well, I hope you don't mind. <laughs> I, I, I like to sleep in the bed. Well, that's no problem. No problem. That's actually a huge problem. What is that? That's a huge problem. Yeah. Like, this is just a, a huge problem. <laughs> I also enjoyed the kind of unromantic relationship that first develops between Nicolas Cage and Frankie Patenta. She is not necessarily super attracted to him, but she's kind of touched that he did all of this to help her and he didn't have to. Over and above rescuing her from a, what looked like an attack in a bathroom, he stayed with her and helped to get her to the hospital and let her sleep while her, her daughter recovered. She felt sorry for him. She sees that he's very lonely, so she sleeps with him. And, like, I don't believe in sex as a reward, but in this case, at least initially, that's how it's played out. It's weirdly unromantic, and I kind of liked it. It also sort of, uh, sort of shakes the foundation of this sort of romantic idealism that I have for a lot of, you know, it's written and directed by a, a woman, and uh, I guess we expect women to be looking for that more romantic angle. This movie's not romantic. In fact, at times it gets icky. I think it was a very important and carefully pointed out plot point that the teenage daughter is 18. Because if she was even one year younger, this whole thing became gross. And yes, Nicolas Cage ends up in a physical relationship with both. And that is kind of ugly. But the psychology of it could have been more interesting if the movie explored it more deeply. And then there's an aside on Mr. Nicolas Cage. Look, uh, I might have been unkind when I did a review for this uh, episode for uh, a Val Kilmer movie called uh, Six Souls, sort of making fun of Val Kilmer for phoning in performances. A once great actor now sort of delegated to direct a video super cheap direct, either because he's impossible to work with or because he doesn't care anymore. I would put Bruce Willis in a similar place. Nicolas Cage, although he does, it seems like, a half a dozen movies a year at this point, and a lot of them fly under the radar, I can't quite put in the same category. Is he guilty of kind of phoning roles in or being at half-mast or half-energy for certain performances? Yes, but usually when the character calls for it. And any time he sees the opportunity to Nick Cage out, he will do it. He will do it. And he picks... Well, let's be fair, he'll take pretty much any project that comes along. But he tries. He's invested. And for that, I appreciate Nick Cage. I find a bad Nick Cage movie is easier to watch than a bad Val Kilmer or a bad Bruce Willis movie. But when I say something like that out loud, it makes me wonder, do I watch too many bad movies? Another thought on the idea of eroticism or the erotic thriller or the erotic supernatural thriller, which is what Between Worlds sort of seems to want to be. It's not super supernatural, and it's not super erotic, and it's not super thrilling, and it's not super romantic, but it is a little bit all of those things. 
So I think the fact that the movie was undefinable might have hurt its audience a little bit. Um, but it is interesting, perhaps more interesting than good. But if they were going for eroticism, um, I think that they needed to handle it differently and that maybe the trucker vibe, the gross sort of gungy vibe that Nicolas Cage had might have been dialed back a little bit. It's also just uncomfortable that the eroticism would be flowing from this gross trucker guy sleeping with the, this woman and her teenage daughter. As far as love triangles go, that's, that's a little on the icky side. So I think in the end, the movie might have a bit of an identity crisis, you know? It, it's hard to get turned on by something which is fundamentally gross and tragic. I mean, these are characters making bad decisions, and we're kind of witnessing them. So I think that might take the thrill out of the eroticism. There are other things working against the movie as well. There's a Baldamenti score that just sounds like leftovers from the Twin Peaks soundtrack. I'm not necessarily all against Twin Peaks, but don't remind me of Twin Peaks if your movie isn't expressing that. Between Worlds does not have a quirky sense of humor. It does not sort of play in the margins. So pretending to put us there or, or using music to suggest that just seems incongruous. There's a scene where we find Nicolas Cage and this teenage girl in the burned-down remains of the house he used to live in. And as much as that's a dramatically potent place for this scene to take place, in the real world, the carcass of this burned shell of a building would not just be standing there. He doesn't have this, like symbol, statue of the life he lost. And it's just one of these heavy-handed things that kind of made me wish that the movie was just a little bit better than it was. The thing is, the movie has a really solid premise. It has a really solid class, uh, cast, pardon me, and there's something really interesting about it. More interesting than good. But because I came into this, and because this whole list of movies I've been reviewing for cheap thrills has set the bar pretty low, I think there's enough interesting here that if you're a Cage fan, or if the idea of Frankie Potenta, you know, seeing her in a new movie, she seems to have disappeared for a while. I mean, yeah, it, it, it was very easy to get my hands on. It was $5 at Walmart, and it passed the time. Will it linger in my memory? Well, I don't think it will. I really don't think it will. I started getting bummed out when characters were making bad decisions, so I guess that meant I was invested, you know? When Nicolas Cage started making bad decisions after making so many good ones, even though he wanted to succeed and he was so drunk and miserable, I felt bad. I felt even frustrated. No, that's the wrong move. That's the wrong move. But that's not indifference. I wasn't bored. I might have wanted the movie to be better than it was. But I was never bored. Strange but true, this direct-to-video Nicolas Cage thriller, of which there seems to be five a year, may end up being the best of this bunch. Sad but true. So then we get to the ending. They go for a really big tragic ending, and... Some of it, with the fire effects, because of their budget, doesn't look as good as maybe I would want it to, but it looks good enough that I would give it a pass. But the movie decides to go back for one more piece of plot point. Plenty of thrillers will want to give us this extra scene at the end, this little 
aha, the evil was not really destroyed or the motivation of the character was not what we thought it would be. This movie ends on a completely unrelated, it seems, flashback to Nicolas Cage's character as a child and as a stinger final moment of the film. It's terrible. If I could take scissors to this movie, I would lose that last scene. But the rest of the movie works enough. I've actually been seeing things. You saw a, a, like a little boy like this? Towards his face, I saw the mirror. I saw this little girl. Look, something's happening in this house. The longer we stay, the more in danger we are. This is your home. You're not leaving. No. You think that any of us are going to make it through the night? This is my sanctuary. Your soul belongs to me. <laughs> Stay away! Drop the knife. Swing low, sweet chariot. Seven below is a horror movie starring Ving Rhames, Luke Goss, Rebecca DaCosta, and Val Kilmer. The subtitle is Evil Has Found a New Home. And I don't know if they mean the house in the movie or within the film itself. It's directed by Kevin Carraway. It's an hour and 34 minutes long, which as I say that is hard to believe because of the many problems that I'm going to talk about in this movie, one of the most consistently frustrating ones is that the movie is so very slow. Like, imagine if an entire film was being delivered as slowly and deliberately as I am speaking right now. Doesn't that sound like exciting? Doesn't that sound like a riveting thriller that you should be filling your time with? Here's the thing, if you're making a low-budget movie, and I speak with a little bit of experience, I made a micro-budget movie, you have to lean into your strengths and distract from your weaknesses. Unfortunately, I think that this is a cautionary tale of a movie that doesn't understand that about itself. I guess the draw to the movie would be the two stars in it, Val Kilmer and Ving Rhames. We'll get to those guys, but... In this case, I don't know that their specific type of draw is the kind of thing that's going to help the movie. I think, once again, like when I was speaking about Two-Headed Shark Attack, your star can be your haunted house. But here's the setup. There is a bunch of tourists on their way home from a resort. They're all in a, in a van or a bus together, being taken from the resort to some other destination. And there's a storm brewing, there's a car accident, they get rescued by Ving Rhames and taken to this spooky house. And the entire premise hangs on it being a classic horror format. This is a dark and stormy night. And we see lightning flashes, we see flashes of light, and when they're outside, sometimes we see a little bit of rain and we hear rain, but we certainly are not subjected to a cataclysmic storm that would stop people from getting from point A to point B, that would force these strangers to huddle in a house that would prevent them from being able to get emergency relief. Like, this storm that is repeatedly mentioned and referenced in the film does not exist. And that is a large weakness of the film. 
because we need to believe that they're stuck there and we don't. It's an important part of the setting. Like, what is your setting? What is your story? The movie wants to sort of slowly lay its cards out on the table, like it's going to be a slow revelation. But if you've ever seen any haunted house movie ever, you're going to know what's going on within the first 10 minutes. And incredibly, out of the hour and 34 minutes that we have here, the movie really doesn't get cooking to a way that we understand what's going on until one hour and two minutes into the film. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, that's too goddamn long. Another important thing with your low-budget film, try to get as good actors as you can, and I think they spent their money on the stars, and I guess I understand that choice. It might have been the wrong choice, but I understand that choice. But a couple of the other performers, one who's playing a sort of doctor who'd been shamed, he made some, some mistake in his past and he's been haunted by it. And another one, one of our main sort of romantic lead characters, have very thick accents. And I don't want to be against accents, people can have accents, but it's not just that they have an accent, it's, it just it feels like they're not comfortable with the English language, and they both have substantial roles, and it, it inhibits their performance, and it, it's like a layer of separation for us, between us and the character. We, we just have to, you know, it, it's a little bit harder for us to gain access to them. Their performance is being filtered through their lack of mastery of the language. I think that both of the actors are fine, but I think that they're struggling with their dialogue, and that seems like unnecessary. This is taking place somewhere in the southern United States. They could have cast anyone in those two roles, especially as roles as big as that. Maybe you want someone who, you know, speaks the language a little bit better. I don't know. Is that unfair? And now we must talk about Val Kilmer. I mean, I, I, I don't like speaking ill about Val Kilmer, but I'm going to speak ill of Val Kilmer. This movie is beneath Val Kilmer, right? I mean, this is, this is the actor, this is the man who... who who was in Hardwired with, you know, Cuba Gooding Jr. I mean, how could he lower himself to this statement, you know? This man was in Batman Forever. This man was in The Snowman. He was in Gun. He was in Super, the movie. He was in Planes. Like, this is Val Kilmer. He added his voice to Delgo. So why should I be so surprised that he completely sleepwalks through this movie? He plays an irritating tourist on the van who is disrespectful to his wife, openly tries to ask out another woman basically in front of his wife, shrugs off the fact that he's an asshole, says, you know who I was when you married me. It, in a weird way, it's like Val Kilmer is playing his reputation in this movie. But it's also on his face that he doesn't want to be there, that he's vaguely disgusted to be there. And to which case I say, Val, why are you there? Do you need the money? Was there not another offer around the corner? Like, clearly if you weren't in this shitty horror movie, you could be in some shitty uh, thriller that you didn't care about. I mean, if you don't care about the movie, give your chair to somebody who wants to be there. But again, I have to say, it is troubling to see this kind of half-assed performance from the guy who starred in Twixt and Blood Out and Red Planet and The Traveler and The Thaw. I mean, this is Val Kilmer. Should we expect more? In a word, I'm going to say no. He's terrible in the movie. In a movie with a lot of problems, he's one of them. And he's supposed to be the draw. 
I'm not going to talk the same measure of shit about Ving Rhames, though. Ving Rhames is being dealt a tough hand here, but he seems to at least be trying to have fun with it. His character is that obvious sort of figure who knows way more than he's going to reveal and is very smug about it. So he's acting mysterious and he's chomping on a cigar and he's chewing the scenery and good for him. There's a funny line he has where he says to a a character very ominously, I was meant to be here. And I can't help but think if it was the actor or the character talking about the situation in the film or if it was just Ving Rhames, the actor. I mean... There will be high points for Big Rames. I mean, he'll always have Pulp Fiction and Out of Sight, and uh, he shows up in fun, interesting roles, the Mission Impossible franchise. But he's just got this unmistakable kind of tough guy face. He also has range as far as an actor. He can play soft, he can play hard, but Ving Rames is just a great character face to have in your movie. And he can't always be in A-list productions, so sometimes he's going to be in B or C-list productions. But if you hire Ving Rhames, he's going to try. He's going to give you your money's worth. As a low-budget filmmaker, as much as I was one time a fan of Val Kilmer, I don't know if I'd want Val Kilmer in my movie. Certainly not this one. But Ving Rhames, man, I would buy that man a beer. I would smoke a cigar with that man. Another thing that occurred to me while I was watching this movie is how certain movies, for me, become like homework when I'm reviewing them for the show. One of the benefits of doing this Cheap Scares episode in the bunker is that I don't have to subject one of my friends to this torture. But, since it is a form of torture, and since my boys often misbehave, what if I made them watch it? Would that maybe correct the behavior? Is this what the death of childhood feels like? I thought I knew what trauma meant, but now I know what trauma means. That was so bad. I don't know what good is anymore. Is 13 too young to start drinking? I've been tasting blood ever since I watched that. I can't hear certain sounds anymore. Um, I'm terrified of and for the world. Dad, was I born a fool? have I been made one? So if you're making a horror movie and it's going to have, you know, twists to it and a climax and an exact sort of exciting payoff, it, it can't be a movie that we've seen hundreds of times before. Or if it is, you can't act like you're being clever or that the reveal is amazing. That's certainly the case of this movie. It was supernatural history repeating and, you know, these characters being whittled off one at a time and using great strategies like let's separate as often as possible. <laughs> Everybody's seeing crazy stuff and the crazy raging storm is going on outside. So let's just, let's just go to our separate creepy corners of this house so we can have our experiences. And again, I keep on going back to the <laughs> this fucking storm, but the climax of the movie takes place in a graveyard, okay? A graveyard that is bone dry. <laughs> Outside, we can hear everybody, we can see everybody, there doesn't seem to be any rain, there doesn't seem to be any wind, I mean, come on you guys, what is the premise of your movie? There's like basic things too, the power is out, so everything's lit by candle. That helps you with your spooky atmosphere, but it hinders you in other ways. Like, they shouldn't be able to listen to the radio to get news report about the non-existent storm, because there's no power. This is very standard, you know, like, proofing of your screenplay and story. Did nobody on set pick up on this? I, I just, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. Part of the sin of, you know, this movie, of this seven below, <laughs> is... 
this deserves the direct DVD obscurity that it has. Like, maybe it's somebody's favorite movie, but that person would have had to have never seen a horror movie before and lived an incredibly sheltered, unhappy life. But while thinking about the curse of DVD obscurity, in a way, it has a better seed of an idea than this movie has a seed of an idea for a horror movie. See, because nowadays everything's streaming, but once upon a time, they were direct-to-video releases. They weren't released as wide as other movies. They were distributed from smaller companies, companies that rose and fell and disappeared. So why couldn't there be some obscure DVD, some old horror movie that is so fucked up or so bad that it has supernatural after-effects on you? I wish almost that that was the case with this movie, but, but it's not. But that... That idea, or the premise of that, maybe it's borrowing a little bit from The Ring or something like that, still more interesting than anything that was going on in this movie. I, I hate picking on low-budget films. Like, I want to, you know, count myself as a low-budget filmmaker. I've made a movie. I know just how difficult it is. I know how, how hard it is to make, how hard it is to get distribution. I know. I am on your side. But Seven Below is not worth visiting. It's, it's hard to even talk about it. I'm glad that I didn't have to subject anyone else to it. But I'm sad, not just for me, for watching it. But somebody's life was put into this movie. Somebody put their back and their heart and their soul into this movie. And I wonder if even they think it's of value. There's a little bit of sex and violence to start the film, then there's a lot of boredom, and then the last half an hour of the movie basically knocks our characters off one at a time until the inevitable conclusion. Whether or not you've seen this movie before, I'm here to tell you, you have seen this movie before. And again, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. I mean, he put his voice in Delgo. In the early days of the 21st century, all the children of the world were struck by a mysterious disease that put them in a deep catatonic state. I will send famine and wild beasts against you. Eric. And they will leave you childless. Something's wrong with my son. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you. And I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It was the greatest catastrophe the world had ever known until they woke up. What's going on? They're awake, man. All of them. From Master of Horror, Clive Barker. You will get out of this alive. Let's go. James Van Der Beek. Get down. The Plague on DVD. They're learning. So when I've been talking about these cheap scares or cheap thrills as I call them, I, you know, want to be on side with the movies. I like to cheer for the movies. And that's definitely where I came from as I entered into this movie, The Plague. There were things that got me there. The presence of Clive Barker, for instance. I mean, for me, Clive Barker as an author is frustratingly inconsistent as, as, as far as the quality of what you're going to get from the writing, but the imagination is usually there for me. 
the world is usually there, the, the ugliness is usually there. And particularly in some of his early stuff, the books of blood and uh, the novellas and these sort of short, grim stories he used to tell, it almost always ended in death, madness, or some combination of the two. Um, they had something that kind of stuck with you. And good product has come from these. The whole Hellraiser franchise. I'm a defender of... Well, well Nightbreed was based off of a novel called Cabal, but that's definitely Clive Barker. Um, you can use these as good fodder for horror movies. I've said favorable things about the Midnight Meat Train. Uh, Candyman, of course. So, The Plague. Clive Barker, as a lure, was big enough to get me past James Vanderbeek. I don't know if we have any James Vanderbeekmans out there, but uh, I never really saw his TV show. I think it was Dawson's Creek, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, I can't comment on that. No comment on that. I didn't see his football movie. I haven't seen a lot from this guy. So it probably sucks for him that, like, I basically know him from this movie. But, like, if I was at the control of the advertising uh, promotion for this film the plague i would have put clive barker's name as big as i could and i would put james vanderbeek's name unfortunately and this is an out for you vanderbeekmans as small as i could because i have to say he's flat in the movie but he's not alone it's one of those weird things where i can tell that most of the actors don't suck but they're not being well represented in the movie there's a fundamental pace, and worse than that, there's a fundamental lack of emotional heft to the proceedings. And it, it, it's such an epic sort of launch pad for a story. It's basically a microcosm zombie kind of deal. All of the children, a certain percentage of the children of the world just go into a coma one day, and that's the way things stay for 10 years family members and loved ones have to care for these dormant children and no one understands why facilities are built to handle them and like 10 years of of dealing with this and the the, the drain on, on on the world and on people and it's it's really emotionally heavy right from the premise and then after the 10 years, for this sort of weird incubation period, they wake up and they are homicidal and they're evil and it becomes like a large-scale children of the corn type of thing. Uh, there's a little bit of percentage of zombie, but there's also a percentage of maybe this is a solvable sort of apocalyptic scenario. But for the people experiencing this, it's all incredibly personal. Maybe a big part of the problem is that they needed a bigger budget, but I honestly think this momentum and this emotional deadness, and I, I don't know how else to put it, holds back the movie. I think it's giving too much air at one, ha one hand to the, to the specific beats of the tragedies, but we're not building the proper atmosphere of sort of, oh my God, and this sort of chaos going on part of the problem is the way it's written but a lot of the part of the problem is the cast will bounce from a scene where an absolutely grim death will take place and then the next scene there's sort of cute banter happening as if the world is not falling apart around them and there's the problem with children when i get around to talking about the children of the corn franchise this will come up the idea of homicidal children can be quite frightening but 
a lot of filmmakers blanch at using actual children. A, they're not great actors a lot of the time, and B, they're, they're physically small. They're hard to make them like look scary. And it's just a real hard thing to deal with a lot of kids. There's a lot of, you know, legalities and restrictions as to what you can do and how many hours a day you can work with children. So consequently, a lot of times when horror movies depend on children, especially a lot of them, the kids are cast a little bit older. And that is definitely, definitely the case with the plague. You can tell that the kids are all cast older and there's certain sequences which I think would be more horrifying and more disturbing if they were actually single-digit age category kids doing these horrible acts instead of clearly teenagers and, and, you know, maybe even older trying to make themselves look young enough to pass as as children. But it sucks because, like, part of me... I don't want to be super brutal with it, but like, I have mostly bad things to say. The whole setup, we, we kind of lock in with this father who's, you know, discovers his son unconscious. And then when he gets to the hospital, realizes that this is happening to so many other people that he's not going to get adequate care for his son. And, and, and your heart should be breaking for him. And I can tell that that actor has really internalized it and he's feeling it, but it's just somehow not coming across. And maybe this is my personal empathy because, you know, as as a person who's done acting in my own life, I know my weaknesses as an actor is either I have a tendency to over or underplay. In this case, the man was underplaying, you know, and uh, you, you need to find that sweet spot in the middle. I believed that he was feeling it, but I didn't believe that emotion coming across. And I wish I could just say that was true for that one character, but it goes across the entire film even in places I wouldn't expect it. Our, our much-beloved Dee Wallace, uh, she of Cujo, she of The Howling, she of E.T., she of so many, you know, genre films, both good and bad. Uh, she's like, a, a to me, some sort of a, a souvenir or, or a mascot or a good luck charm for the genre. If you can get her to be in your movie, even for a scene or a cameo, it's gonna it's gonna make a lot of people smile as long as she doesn't take you out of it. And she is well cast here. She's playing a mother who's terrified for her daughter and then so happy when she hears that the kids are waking up and then of course not able to handle it or in any real way believe it that that her daughter is evil or that there's some sort of homicidal thing has taken over what was once her child. Dee Wallace, she's she's always been a really great actress, and you would think like this would lock right into stuff we've seen her do before. We've seen her play, you know, the protective mama bear in like The Hills Have Eyes and and Cujo. Like she can bring it, she can bring it, and she can also be incredibly heartbreaking and sympathetic. And I know she's a good actress, so I don't know why her scenes don't work for me. They're just like everyone else's in this movie. There's just something fundamentally missing of the movie. The soul of the movie is just not present. And it's so close to being a zombie movie that there's a lot for me to want to, to cheer for and a lot of stuff that I would forgive, you know? The budget's not going to pull this particular premise off. I've always said you can make low-budget zombie movies, but you have to know you're making a low-budget zombie movie. And you have to, you know, really be disciplined with your cast. And, and you know, every day that, that you're shooting seems to go on forever. But moment for moment, these characters are living in fear of their lives, also in sort of shock and despair, 
all of them have lost loved ones very close to them very recently. And there should be chaos raging around outside. And it's just not convincing. It's like the storm that was missing in, in that Seven Souls movie. They keep on talking about the storm, but I'm just not hearing or believing that storm. In this case, I keep on hearing about this apocalypse and this violence. And other than a few stray bodies laying here and there, I don't, I don't feel it. I don't believe it. And I guess I can go back to picking on Mr. James Vanderbeek. I'm sorry, Mr. James Vanderbeek. I mean, uh, maybe I'll see you in other things and you'll be redeemed here. But uh, the decisions made by the character and, again, his inability to react emotionally to, like, the death uh, of his of his father or, 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 you know, the overtaking of his brother, his interactions with his ex-wife, who, like, they're supposed to be bonding over this adventure. This is a classic and kind of cliched uh, idea of every sort of B-movie, horror movie, or action adventure that somehow the peril rekindles a relationship. The chemistry is not there, and the scenes between them just slow as molasses leaking out of a tree, you know? It's, it's unfortunate. Again, the pieces are there, but there's something that is keeping me away and detached from it, and, like... It deserves a remake. It deserves, and I hate to say it in this episode about cheap scares, a better budget and, you know, momentum and uh, emotional connection to the movie. Mr. Vanderbeek, and here we go into some spoilers, decides eventually to take, you know, the sacrificial position. Even though he's been sort of, you know, bullheaded predictable hero up until a point uh he also kind of quits and sits out this you know let's go back and get them point which logically is understandable let we've just gotten away from the danger why go back just for to fight these kids all of a sudden like again his character makes the smartest decision as far as the real world but as far as him being the hero of this you know it it seems like just letting them go to their death which is what happens to most of them uh seems like a weak moment for him and his suddenly showing up is not really surprising nor is it redemptive and when he gives his life and literally his soul to these children's just so that they will uh you know be benign at least as far as we know to his ex-wife because once he's part of them uh he, he has a say in matters in some ways uh so some of the violence has been called down somehow but the movie ends in uncertainty, but I think it's supposed to be sad or spooky or some combination of the both. Like, I I should be devastated with what happened to, to, to Vanderbeek, and I, I just not. I should be sad for, you know, his, you know, his lover who's, you know, almost almost had that, that relationship rekindled, but had it taken away from her at the last second, and ugh. And the literary imagery, we keep on going back to the Grapes of Wrath and references are being made to that and what this character's connection to it. I'm actually weirdly familiar with that book because I, I did a play of it, so uh, an adaptation on the stage for it, and I read the novel in preparation. And I don't know. I don't know if that's coming from the source material or not, but it's, it's definitely not fitting in the muck of mire of this movie. If you want to make sort of an apocalyptic, fun, popcorn zombie movie, make that. If you want to make a psychological deterioration, apocalypse, everything's gone to shit, do that. But, um, you know, 
know what you're doing. You know, it just seemed like the bare minimum was getting done to get through the scenes. But what is a good story and what could be an exciting movie was somehow getting missed in the in-between. It's weird. All the pieces are there, but the movie just isn't. This thing goes on a rampage, looking for you. It's not gonna stop. He's a dark prince. He seeks the girl. He desires to mate with her. A homeless woman was found dead, possibly victim of a wild dog attack. It's here. Welcome to the party. I didn't ask for any of this. Yes, werewolves exist. So I am currently 22 minutes and 32 seconds into the movie Dark Wolf. So obviously this can't be my entire review. This is the introduction to my review. And maybe I'll be dissuaded. Maybe I'll be wrong. I've never particularly gone beat by beat through a movie before. But Dark Wolf, half man. Half beast, pure evil. A new breed of horror roams the streets of Los Angeles. It's the Dark Wolf, a vicious werewolf with a thirst for blood and a lust for Josie, a sexy, unsuspecting woman with a mysterious power she is only beginning to understand. Once the Dark Wolf catches Josie's scent, nothing can stop his insatiable hunger to mate with her, and he'll kill anyone who gets in his way. Right, so uh, this was... Produced and directed by Richard Friedman, and this is not his first rodeo. And it's 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 distributed by Twentieth Century Fox, so it's you know it, it's out there. You can you can find it, or you know it, it was distributed. <laughs> um, and it's got a few faces I recognized. I recognized Stephen Williams for the few seconds he was in the movie before he was eaten by a werewolf, and obviously I recognized Kane Hodder playing the werewolf himself. And very strangely, I recognized Tippy Hedren from The Birds as this sort of overwatcher werewolf uh, protector figure. It's interesting that they have a handful of good actors in the movie, but they must have really blown their budget there because everybody else seems to be trying too hard. You know, our, our hard-ass male lead, <laughs> I think it's Ryan Alonzo, Alozio. I don't know how to say his name. Uh, he's trying maybe just a little bit too hard. And our, our female lead, this new investigator that he's been teamed up with now that his partner's been killed. I can't sugarcoat it. She is bad. She is bad. I am, I'm 22 minutes into the movie and I, I'm not sure like if I can justify how uncomfortable she seems on camera. There's got to be some sort of payoff later on that's going to make this all clear to me. But this is the level of production that we're dealing with, and I have to say, on some level, it's frustrating. Some of the first line of dialogue in the movie, which is like a, it's supposed to be inside of a club, you can, 
you can hear bad echo and, and room tone behind their dialogue. Like it doesn't sound, it's not that it sounds bad, it sounds unprofessional. There's like a weird echo and it doesn't fit in with the rest of the sound that we see in the movie. And I'm hoping that it gets better, but our first tease of this werewolf is some of the shittiest CGI that I've ever seen. And in the werewolf genre, you know, historically CGI hasn't been super good for you, you know? Um, werewolf fan, fans are looking for that cool transformation scene and looking to see, uh, you know, your scary wolf creature. That's what we want to see, not like a black shadowy CGI blur, you know, worthy of the boogeyman. It's 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 shocking and strange how, like, braid away the movie, you know, it slaps you with its incompetence. And like I said, this is not his first rodeo, nor is it his last. You'd never guess it by watching it. And the point that made me want to stop and start recording is that, like, there's a scene where in a cafe, a cafe where one of our characters works and a couple have walked in. We're not supposed to like these people. I'm betting real good that they're not going to, you know, make it through the movie. He's here to pick up his girlfriend. He's really sort of dismissive and shitty to her. And he petulantly says, we'll be over here in this booth. And then the two of them sit down at a table. I know that seems like a small thing, and maybe that's what it said in the in the script, that we'll be here in this booth, but if you're going to block them to a table, change the line to table, or change the table to one of the other visible booths in the room. It's things like that that makes me think that people just didn't care. It was like a one-take film, you know? Everybody had one shot at it, so, you know, no warming up the actors, no rehearsal, Let's get out of this, off of this set as soon as possible. And I, I gotta say, it's, it's, it's frustrating to watch. And really, of all the weird draws to put on your poster, I mean, I guess Kane Hodder has his audience, but I, I've always thought of him more of a stunt performer than an actor. I don't mean to hurt the man's feelings. I don't think he's horrible, but he's unmistakably Kane Hodder. You know, he never vanishes into anything as far as I'm concerned. And Tippi Hedren, just this weird grandmotherly werewolf protector figure. You know, I, I, I doubt Tippi Hedren, you know, even back in her days dealing with, with Hitchcock, ever imagined she would be in a movie that opened on naked female breasts in a strip club. There's just, it, it's so classless to see her, you know, playing this old lady sitting in a back alley, supposedly homeless, but way too glamorous and way too, you know, perfect to for the cover that she's trying to, to keep here. And yeah, I mean, Tippi Hedren and Kane Hodder. That's a weird mix. I mean, unless, unless some magic happened and they hooked up behind the scenes, which that by itself would be its own different and better movie so far than Dark Wolf. <laughs> Tippy plus Kane. Okay, so I am now 54 minutes and 25 seconds into Dark Wolf. And hilariously, just a few seconds after I, I, I unpaused the movie, Tippy Hedren's character was killed off. Again, the violence happens off screen and she's laying in the alley and, and they, her body is discovered. And the partner character, who I didn't understand what the purpose of was, has been bit by a werewolf. And then she gets sent to the hospital. Then we don't see her for a long time. And then there's a scene with her in the hospital and she gets killed by the werewolf. Which just makes me wonder why they didn't just kill her in the bathroom of the ca of the cafe 
and it answered my question what they were going to do with this girl. But I, I got to say, watching the movie, I have the suspicion, like, originally the idea was to do more of the character. They had other stuff that she was going to do, but she wasn't bringing it as an actress. So they killed her off in, like, two different scenes. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that part was amusing, and there there is a little bit of, like, embarrassing so bad it's good happening but man you guys i just hit this absolutely crazy scene like i i I've watched exploitation horror movies and i'll even defend to a limited degree exploitation horror movies but what 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 is happening with this movie we one of the characters is a photographer we have a montage of him and his buddy finding after they find this werewolf book they're inspired and they there's a montage of them prepping these models and there's been a lot of superfluous titties in this movie a lot of like needless nudity and like whatever roll your eyes but there was just the sequence of these two women first of all we we had a montage of them preparing for the shoot and then we have this positively endless soft core porn scene really set on a rooftop with these two women dancing about stark naked in full body paint, kissing each other, and this is all juxtaposed with a character we don't care about uh, who who was locked in the basement somehow, very, very slowly being stalked and killed by a werewolf. And the stalking and killing and attack and murder of this kid is being juxtaposed with these two women wolfing out and sexually arousing each other and uh, I guess kissing each other into orgasm. It's it's a bizarre thing to even have to try to describe to you guys, but like the whole this whole sequence, I don't know, I should have put the clock on it. It it just goes on and on and on and it answers my question how this movie got distribution. It's just exploitive. It's just, it's a titty movie. And it's way better, I guess, at being a titty movie so far than it is at being a werewolf movie. Speaking of the werewolf, I guess there's a little bit of good news in that department. They're showing us some close-ups of the werewolf's feet and the werewolf's teeth and the werewolf's eyes, which is all working at least better for me than the fucking blurry bad CGI. Oh, and there's there's this really irritating zip-panning 90s, even though it's in the 2000s thing that they're doing, where there's these weird transitions where the camera's jerking around, and we're seeing weird blips of other scenes and, like, exteriors, and I don't know, it's it's an old... It, well, it, it, it felt like a fresh technique maybe 20 years ago, but now it's really dating movies of that time that was just overused. Man... This movie fucking sucks, you guys. I mean, the werewolves, I get, like, you got the sort of bestial fury, the, the worst, deepest part of man's dark heart gets unleashed. And I get there being a sexual component about that. Maybe even the werewolf's goal in this is to mate with this young budding werewolf, and uh, she doesn't get a say in it, so there's something aggressive about it. But maybe werewolves are, you know, sexual creatures. Maybe there is that appetite to it. Maybe they want to play a little bit in the realm of Dracula. And within the context of the story, they can find ways to do their superfluous nudity. But this movie just will randomly cut to photographer taking picture of topless woman. <laughs> you know, just just for no reason. The, the plot stops for it repeatedly. 
And, you know, maybe when I was 13 or 14, I would have said that was brilliant. But, like, it's 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 really a hard watch. And it seems lost out of time. Like, do we need movies like this anymore? Is, is anybody just, like, if you're, I don't know, I don't know. If you're looking for exploitation or if you're looking for this level of two women making out and, like, orgasming juxtaposed with werewolf violence for, like, ten minutes... I mean, find your fetish porn and go there. This is, this is, this is weird. Um, I'm slowly kind of warming to the actor who's playing the lead cop. I think he's getting a little bit less about the gruff, I'm too cool for schoolness, and at least trying to give us a performance here. I think maybe the problem is that he's in a bad movie, and he knows it. And guys, I can't believe I'm only 54 minutes in. Oh man, I really was going to wait till the end of the movie and not stop again. It's only an hour and three minutes and 48 seconds into the movie, but I just had to stop. I just I just had to stop. Like, I need somebody here almost to talk to with to, to, to deal <laughs> with what I am seeing. I have to say, congratulations, Dark Wolf. You officially have the worst transformation sequence I've ever seen. I mean, maybe in a cutscene from a video game from 1995, that computer transformation would go would, would pass muster. But I am uh, embarrassed for everyone involved. I'm embarrassed for Kane Hodder, and I'm embarrassed for the whoever they had obviously doing stunt butt work for him. I guess Hodder doesn't like to let it hang for the movies. I don't know, but he clearly had a stunt butt for his nude scenes in this movie. And the nonsensical and the lack of understanding of basic spatial awareness and blocking, once again, <laughs> seems to be a problem with this movie. The werewolf shows up at the photographer's place and the makeup artist is mauled to death. The girls go down to the basement and to find the body of the other young man. When they come up, they tell the other photographer who was in his uh, his his black room to uh, develop the the, the the photographs, the sexy photographs he'd been taking, what was going on, and they flee the building. They tell him about the body, and they take him down to the body. But they would have had to have gone past the battered and devoured corpse of the makeup artist without either noticing it or feeling it worthy of mention. Like, the, the, the internal logic of the movie, like, the, the A to B, like, did somebody care? Obviously... I don't know. I mean, the, the, these questions might be their own answers. God damn it, you guys. And so endeth Dark Wolf. Oh my God, you guys. That was a long 94 minutes. Holy shit. Um, look, uh, it, it's it's a different way to do a review to actually sort of track my experience as I'm watching it. So, I mean, sometimes I make assumptions that I'm wrong. And when I'm wrong about something, I'll admit it. They qualified why they missed the body the first time. They said that they used a different way in. A heretofore unseen and never seen before or since entrance. So that's why they didn't find the body till later. But they did find the body later. Gay, whatever. So that was not a really authentic, uh, you know, fair criticism. But there's just so much... So much to criticize. I mean, I, I, I said that there was, like, the worst werewolf transformation of all time. And, and, you know, give them this. They up the ante. There's three of the worst werewolf transformations of all time. 
Again, I go back to the shoddy execution from the sound. There's a scene with two characters trapped in an elevator and the sound just sounds bad. It sounds like they needed to like re-record like, something. It just didn't work. It didn't fit with the rest of the movie. Those CGI effects are embarrassing. And like, I get the feeling like, I don't know, the, the, the director or the writer must be obsessed with women in makeup. We have a scene where, again, after a terrible CGI transformation, there's a woman who's in a fairly decent full body werewolf outfit, but she's not really asked to do anything but writhe around. And again, it's another time where we have a woman, like, she's covered in makeup, but she's fully nude for a sequence for, you know, werewolf reasons. It's not particularly titillating. It's not particularly needed. It's just kind of there. But believe it or not, like, uh, somehow good triumphs over evil. But all of the steps of this, like, every, every turn of it kind of frustrates me. They tried to, like, rip off the Terminator when, the original Terminator, when, when Arnold Schwarzenegger wipes up an entire police precinct in his attempt to get at his victim. Werewolf does the same thing here, but it's just executed terribly it's not convincing at any point for any time and i mean if you're going to rip off something that you know iconic i think you need you need to try a little harder and you know it just wasn't really necessary for, for this particular movie know your budget know your restraints like <laughs> you clearly didn't have the money to shoot the script that you had so so either make some changes cut some corners or or for God's sake, try to have some fun with it. And, and none of none of that, none of that happened, you know. But, you know, at least the emotional heart and core of the movie worked. Man, at the end of this movie where the, the woman tells the police officer that he was a great protector after all, and they have a kiss, and he tells one of his lame dad joke, werewolf jokes to her, and it's really charming. I, man, I just teared up because why wouldn't they be together, man? They Shouldn't they be together? It's just not fair. And then it cut to Kane Hodder's corpse in, you know, in the morgue. And again, what a wasted fucking opportunity, you guys. Kane Hodder as a werewolf, a man who is a stunt performer who can wear a suit. That should have been amazing, and it really wasn't. But we'll give Kane this. He left us with the most frightening prospect that this whole shitty enterprise managed in this whole the whole shitty not scary not thrilling experience he left us with the scary nay terrifying proposition of a dark wolf fucking two this movie's gross this movie is like a movie that i'm ashamed to have on my shelf this is a movie that you people can rightfully use to criticize the horror genre this is a movie that besmirches the good name of Kane Hodder and Tippi Hedren. And again, I hope the two of those guys had fun behind the scenes. I hope somebody had fun behind the scenes. Again, to get personal, there is an ocean of unseen, much-loved, much-toiled-over independent films. I know because I made one of them. And they don't suck as bad as this movie sucks. But they're not getting seen because they don't have cameo performances from you know well past their prime stars and because you know they're not wall-to-wall -wall titty or wall-to-wall -wall exploitation or they weren't made for no money in a back 
alley in Los Angeles somewhere by some guy who doesn't seem to care. He's always going to have a movie before this shitty movie, and he's always going to have a movie after this shitty movie. And they'll get distributed. So many people, you know, want to be storytellers. And it's frustrating to see something this shoddy distributed by an actual serious film company. It, it kind of offends me. It offends me for being a bad werewolf movie, and it offends me on behalf of low-budget filmmakers everywhere. So, I don't know if it's coming across, but Darkwood, Dark Wolf really hit a nerve, and not a good one. Not a good one. Maybe I've been in the bunker too long. Maybe it's just all just been too much. Maybe I just, I'm taking it all out on this movie. But if that's the case, it was the right movie to take it out on. I like a werewolf movie. I will be very forgiving of a low-budget movie. I, 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 can, I can laugh at and or with, I will try to enjoy your movie. This movie has left me with a bad taste in my mouth. Like, I couldn't believe that for the cheap scares there would be ever a movie that would outsuck Seven Souls. But damn it if they didn't manage to pull that shit off. Fuck you, Dark Wolf. that I, I really set out to avoid when I started this podcast about I just don't want to be about hate I don't want to be negative that's just not who I ever felt I wanted to be and hopefully not the person that I am so when I pick cheap thrills I mean I'm not I'm, I'm not the guy who's going to just blow raspberries at a low budget film I, I want it to be good or I want to be able to focus on what is good I want to be cheering for everybody involved I've been where a lot of these people were, you know, just trying like hell to get a story told and get it out into the world, and it's a difficult thing to do. So I, I hate myself a little bit for how mean I have sounded and shall continue to sound about this rank. It was kind of a random selection, so uh, like maybe I just got a bad bunch, maybe it's part of the bunker project that I've just been watching so many movies I was deluged. and. Some of these hurt more than maybe they should, and maybe hit personally more than they should, but this was a tough rank, and the only good news about this list, I think, is that uh, it was largely just subjected on myself. Um, so thank you for bearing with me through all those reviews. I'm sorry about Clive. Clive might be a little bit inside baseball if you don't know local theater in Saskatoon, which I suppose there's no reason most of you should. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a figure of my past. Uh, that's a shout out to all the OBDT kids that are still out there and still listening. Big love, big love 
for myself and presumably Clive. Um, I'm gonna do my ranks here. We're gonna do my least favorite of these six cheap thrills or cheap scares or however we're gonna call it. Dark Wolf takes the bottom spot and like, congratulations. Congratulations for being the one that, that wasted the best of premise and, you know, maybe the best cast that we had here, at least as far as their, their execution, and just being a waste of time. Just being a waste of time. It's it's boring spank material, you know? And Tippy Hedren's in it, you know? <laughs> like, what, 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 what is going on? How is this a thing that is out in the world? I'm, it, 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 it amazes me. And the only thing that amazes me more is that, that Seven Souls is going to somehow make it into fifth place because that was a hard sit. That was a hard sit. It was obvious and it was amateur. But despite of that, I'm going to say of all of the movies that I'm talking crap about on this list, I would say to the production people within it, you know, keep trying, you know, you know, don't, you don't have to quit. You don't have to stop being filmmakers because of this, you know, no, nobody's perfect. Sometimes you just need to get there, but I could not recommend that anybody see this movie. And honestly, is, is this what we can expect from Val Kilmer? I mean, the man who, who starred in the remake of Island of Dr. Moreau in fourth place, two headed shark attack. And by ranking fourth, it surely must be one of the most lauded Asylum productions of all time. I mean, I, I can't stop you from watching Two-Headed Shark Attack. If you're, if you're a sucker for cheap B-Shark movies, you're going to watch it, and that's on you. I guess it's the most is-what-it-is of all of these movies. It's bad, it knows it's bad, and the viewers know it's bad before they press play. I don't think it's worth their time, but... Uh, like I said, it's, <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? It exists. I can't do anything about it. In third place, somehow, The Plague. And this is this is interesting because it, it has the most exciting and interesting premise of all of these movies by far. And it is the most boring and dumb feeling of all of that. It's, it's, it's bland. It's James Vander Bland. But it's, it's not as bad, like horrible is like I guess hard to watch as it is just kind of boring and bland so it's neither horrible or bad bad but I couldn't call it good and yet in this bunch here we have it somewhere somehow making it to number three number two between worlds starring the living performance art piece Nicolas Cage I mean it's more interesting than maybe good, but interesting was enough to get it to rank high in this list. I certainly don't want to oversell this or any of the movies on this, this list, but if there was one that, quote, overperformed for me, it was Between Worlds. What, what sad words to have to say out loud. And number one, I'll back Clive's play on this one, I guess, subspecies. It is what it is. It is when it is. And it's, in quotation marks, fine. And that gives it first place in this episode of Rankin Review. Thank you for listening to the first assembly of the series of episodes that is going to be the Bunker series, the Bunker Diaries. Um, all of these will have ranks. All of these will have six reviews. All of them will have 
sort of different takes and different approaches to how I review them, and most of them will just be solos. So I hope you're liking this, and please send your feedback when, you, when you've listened to the whole episode. Um, there's going to be bonus material with each one of these two. For instance, coming up, a bonus review. Not a cheap scare, not, not, not in, in, in the way that I've implied through the rest of the episode, but uh, a modern scare from a, a filmmaker I like. I'm going to get into um, You Should Have Left from David Kep in just a minute here. So thanks, you guys. before that one. What sort of house? Why do people hate daddy so much? The judge and the jury all found him innocent, but some people didn't believe him. The house shows me. He must be guilty of something. People have always stayed in that house. Ella! Some don't leave. Wait up, the dream! The right ones usually find the place. Maybe it's the other way around. The place finds them. So, you should have left. I mean, this doesn't fit in with any of the sort of bunches that I'm making for episodes in this whole bunker project, but there was an uneven number of days in the calendar. I get enough to make five episodes or five groups of six, and I had one day that I could make a random movie pick, and I wanted something that was relatively new for the Halloween season, and I wanted something that I was kind of excited about, that wouldn't be homework, that I could maybe, quote, look forward to. So, You Should Have Left is uh, an adaptation of a novel, and it is written and directed by David Kep, and it reunites him with star Kevin Bacon. The two of them had previously done another horror movie, which is an adaptation of a Richard Matheson novel, called Stir of Echoes, and that is a very fine piece of ghost filmmaking from the late 90s. In fact, like I'm a really big fan of that movie. And I've sort of tracked his career. He's written a lot of interesting movies. Even the bad ones are at least memorable. Like, he wrote I Come in Peace, that old Dolph Lundgren, you know, action stupidity, or, or Toy Soldiers, or, um, you know, he wrote Jurassic Park and Carlito's Way. He wrote the kind of, I think, sort of, kind of maybe underrated Ron Howard movie, The Paper, and I've really liked following his directing career. I mean, The Trigger Effect is not a well-remembered thriller, or, I mean, it wasn't badly remembered, it's just maybe not a remembered thriller, but for me it exploited, you know, a weakness in my own personality that I recognize about how I would not be able to well-handle certain situations, certain disaster situations I would not, I would not do well in. Um, it really had an effect on me, and it stayed with me. Like I said, loved Stir of Echoes. And then there was that Secret Window, Stephen King adaptation, and it was one of those cases that I worried that maybe I had too much expectation, and I actually enjoyed it more upon revisiting it than I did when I initially watched it. And he's made other movies too, interesting experiments like Ghost World with Ricky Gervais and uh, that biking thriller, uh, Premium Rush, and... Uh, apparently Mordecai was not a good watch. I have not seen Mordecai, but he, he keeps things interesting. But this return 
to you know the horror genre with Kevin Bacon it, it got me excited you know and maybe maybe that's the problem I, I feel like it could be a repeat of my secret window sort of thing where I could revisit it and maybe get more out of it maybe my expectation for the film was 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 the thing that I needed to overcome I wanted the movie to be really good, and I was excited, and maybe that could undo me. And this is, again, my first my first pass. Like, I reserve the right to, on another episode of Rankin Review with a proper guest, have a ch- another, another whack at this movie. But I gotta be honest about how I feel initially on my very first pass. And, you know, it's it goes back to that sort of teenage-parent relationship where... You can deal with your parents being mad, you can handle that, but the thing that really sucks is this one. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. There's enough in the movie that works, that you can see the really good movie that's haunting this, you know, that's underneath there, and and, uh, that in a way makes it maybe more frustrating, or it did on this first viewing, more frustrating than I wanted it to be. And I mean, let's, let's talk about Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon has been a face that has been in movies as long as I've been watching them. I'm just, like, familiar with that guy. But he, he has sort of had a career resurgence. And he's, you know, started his career, well, memorably with Friday the 13th, but mainly with, with comedies or, you know, movies that have sort of appealed to a wide sort of young audience, like The Footloose and, you know, Animal House. And he just sort of became this mainstay recognizable face. And as he got older, he sort of got reinvented, and he did all these darker movies, these thrillers, you know, um, The Darkness, or, or uh, <clears throat> playing the villain in that, that super movie with Rain Wilson, and he, he'll play bad guys in movies like R.I.P.D. Not all of them are great movies, but he's usually good in them. And I kind of like the new sort of skeevy, you know, uh, twitchy bad guy, uh, Kevin Bacon, you know. He's still, he can't help but be, you know, that recognizable Kevin Bacon fellow, but, like, he comes through for me in this movie. And interesting sequences and ideas about this strange house in Wales where these people end up staying, um, you know, when he realizes that the measurements don't work out from the outside of the house to the inside, that somehow it's it's bigger on the inside. It's got this Doctor Who thing. Amanda Seyfried, very, very talented, very, very beautiful Canadian actress, we want to support that, and uh, the movie touches on themes of sort of the trust and of uh, you know new relationships and getting to know each other and and fidelity and um, you know recognizing yourself, your own faults, and and who you are, and maybe even toys with the idea. Um, I don't want to give away the whole meal right away, but if it's possible that one can in some way haunt themselves, not in a split personality way, but in a sort of a grim supernatural fate kind of way. It's not exactly a ghost movie, it's not exactly not a ghost movie, and it's got a lot of interesting character beats and a lot of interesting psychological nerves to it. Let's let's play the tension of the trust and is Amanda Seyfried on the level? Is is Kevin Bacon on their level? We know that there's going to be a story about his past that's going to sort of you know, give a reason for why he is a target for all of this darkness. And I'm not exactly right about all of my predictions, but I'm not exactly wrong about all of my predictions. But it's a kind of movie that I've been been bumping into more and more, and maybe it's just a, a, a factor of watching so many of them. It's a movie full of scenes that by themselves work for me, that are good scenes in their own way. 
but when you take all those good scenes and string them together, it just kind of added up to okay. I feel strangely unmoved by the movie. And again, is it me? Am I the problem? Is it expectation? Did, did, I, did I do something wrong? <laughs> I'm still a believer in David Cap. I still think like that he's uh, an interesting director and, you know, a fairly solid screenplay writer. We can't say everything he touched is gold, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for the man. And I like what this movie, again, wants to be. I keep finding myself repeating myself, but, but it, it, it's true. There's the movie that I expected and there's the movie I got. So it's, it's a hard one to, to sort of get my head around. Enough of it works that I should be, I feel like I should be happier than I am right now. Maybe this whole experiment is getting to me. Maybe this was all a bad idea, but um, maybe I should have left this movie for another time. But if I'm honest, my first time pass, to be real, was I super excited about You Should Have Left by David Cap? No, I wasn't. But I will keep it around. I will give it another day in court. Uh, I, I have so much respect for everybody involved. And um, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. Maybe, maybe I'm, 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 I'm doubting myself at this point. Man, do I need someone to talk to. <laughs> Congratulations for making it through the first episode of the Bunker Diaries Cheap Scares. Um, yeah, uh, I, I promise there will be no more Clive. That was just a sort of little little cameo appearance. So if, if that rubs you the wrong way, you don't have to worry about Clive. He, he's back in his cage, I hope, somewhere. Um, there are going to be more Bunker episodes, and I do am going to try and spice them up. Like I said, reviews where you, you'll get sort of feedback from me as I'm watching the movie. And sort of surprise guests, and a little more overtly comical. Sort of playing with my format a little bit. I hope you guys are okay with it, and I hope you let me know what you thought of it by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Um, thank you so much. You can always find the show at rankinreview.ca. And um, please listen and support to other friendly podcasts, podcasts that are friendly to my show, those being the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, the, the Terror Table, Cobwebs, a Gothic Horror Podcast, um, Welcome to Riverdale, and uh, a, a Lifetime of Hallmark. A lot of good things to put in your ears. Thank you for your ears. Thank you for supporting Rankin Review. I am, as always, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Not in the bunker anymore. Just here to tell you thank you so much for listening. We shall do more.